everyone. Welcome to A Gut Feely. My name is Jake and I'm joined here today with Dave. As health coaches and educators, we've helped thousands of clients optimize their life by healing their gut. Our aim with this podcast is to provide you with some of those tools. Now, before we get into it, don't forget to check out the show notes for links to our social media profiles. And if you like what we've got to say, go with your gut and give this podcast a follow. Now, let's get into today's show. <laughs> okay, we're going to do a top five today. So we've decided to talk about the top five gut healing foods that we think everyone should be adding into their diet. And the first one is going to come as no surprise to people because it's probably the most um, discussed gut healing food out there. And that's bone broth, um, but not just bone broth, also gelatin, collagen. And we want to talk about slow cooked foods as well because they have the same peptide, same amino acids. So for starters, Dave, give us a bit of an overview. Why would bone broth and collagen and all these compounds be such amazing gut healing foods? Well, I think it just comes down to like stuff that we've talked about before, where we talk about like there's there's two main theories, and we, you know, without going into too much depth with both of them, you've got like germ theory, and that's obviously where we're focusing on like the pathogens and the microorganisms, you know, beneficial flora, opportunistic bacteria, commensal bacteria, and then you've got terrain theory. And terrain theory is really based on the connective tissue. So it's based on like type one collagen. Okay. So it's based on things like the, the structure. So we're talking about like the brush borders, like the little like tentacles at the top. We've got the epithelium themselves. And once again, there's all these different types of epithelium. We've got the mucosa in there. You've got the lamina propria, gut associated lymphoid tissue, submucosa. So this is all connective tissue. And there's just like this soup that you need for this connective tissue. And what we always say is that um, a little bit like the forest analogy and really you know, the for, like a forest is an ecosystem and within that ecosystem, okay, you've got the structure and the structure would be the trees and the bushes and the river and the soil. Okay. This is all the structure. And then uh, you've got the animals that live in that environment. And obviously the equivalent to that structure in the gastrointestinal tract is what I've been talking about here. And the equivalent of the animals would be the microbiome. Okay. Mm. And like I guess our what, what we would say when it comes to that sort of like forest analogy is can you really have an ecosystem if you don't have the structure? Mm. And that's really, really where things like slow cooked meats and gelatin and bone broth and bone marrow really come into their into their own because they are really providing a lot of the key building blocks that we actually need for that structure. Mm. If we look at that soup that we need, you need things like hydroxyproline proline, glycine, arginine, glutamine. These are like key amino acids that we need for that connective tissue, like type one collagen. Okay. Yes. You need the micronutrients as well, like B6 pyridoxine. You can obviously take that in supplemental form, like a P5P, like a pyridoxal 5-phosphate, manganese, vitamin C, zinc, and copper. It's sort of like the soup that we need. And what, what we're focusing on here is, you know, some of those key amino acids that we need for that structure. When you have things like slow cooked meats and you know gelatin and these things, okay, you get hydroxyproline, proline, and glycine, okay, that's for sure. And of course, you're probably going to get arginine and glutamine in slow cooked meats as well. But you know, and there's and there's other things that we can get this from as well. I mean, you can get it from things like collagen peptides, and that means that you know they're denatured, so they're a little bit more bioavailable. Mm -hmm. So it goes through like a steaming process. So. Once again, we're just getting like the, the key building blocks that we need for that, for that connective tissue. So I'm not so, just talking about the epithelium, but also 
the the different layers it's a bit like a layer cake so yeah um, so let me pause you there for one moment so at the start you mentioned that you kind of gave these two different ways of understanding the gut a little bit you talked about german terrain and so what you said for people who might not be familiar with that you're saying that there's this sort of general understanding that's usually accepted i guess by most people that it's the bacteria that we're exposed to which causes issues if someone's unwell it's because of a particular bacteria and that's permeated not just this whole disease model kind of idea but it's also permeated what people think of when it comes to good gut health and obviously you know we're not we're not going to um, minimize the effect of bacteria in the gut and, and the positive and negative effects of that but that's an interesting point because a lot of the time when people are talking about gut healing foods Obviously, bone broth is one that comes up a lot, but most of the other ones that come up tend to all be bacterial-based. They tend to all be probiotic foods and fermented foods and stuff that actually contains bacteria because it seems to be harking back to that mentality of, well, it's all about the germ. It's all about the bacteria that matters. And that's something I hadn't really thought about until you just mentioned that because what you're saying now is, well, the terrain is what largely what matters. And so that's why bone broth and these, these peptides and, and amino acids are so important because that's reinforcing this whole breadth of structure. All these different components of the gut ultimately are made up of, of collagen tissue. Yeah. So, well, you've just listed a whole lot of different compounds you've mentioned because people probably listening are like, well, okay, collagen and, and gelatin and bone broth. Well, are these the same? Are these different? Can you give us a little bit of an overview? I know you just mentioned that there's, there's some processing differences there, but if someone's just wanting to get some of these, you know, the proline and these amino acids and your glycine, and does it matter which one they're going for? Or is, is, as long as you're getting something in the has these amino acids in, it's fine. Look, once again, I, I think it, I think it can depend in terms of what you're looking for. And it can, uh, sometimes it can depend on the types of issues that you've got. If we're looking at like what's going to cover the, the most bases when it comes mm -hmm. to just the structure of the gut lining, so more multifaceted, well, really what we're focusing on here is like slow-cooked meats, okay? Because remember I said that, yes, of course, we could take things like collagen peptides and these types of things and get the hydroxyproline and the proline and the glycine, okay? Yeah. But the good thing about slow-cooked meats is we're also, especially if it's like, you know, uh, slow cook like lamb shanks or beef ribs or lamb ribs or whatever that might be. Okay. Well, these are going to be very high in things like arginine. Again, okay? obviously arginine is important for things like nitric oxide. So that we are obviously going to get other benefits there as well, but it's also very rich in things like glutamine. Glutamine is like a substrate for the immune system, but we also need it for things like glutathione. I mean, we can keep on going further down that rabbit hole, but it's sort of going to, uh, you know, uh, I guess, tick a lot more boxes, okay? And also you got to bear in mind, well, okay, when we're slow cooking it, so it's almost like it's cooking from the, like, like the inside out. And then also what all the nutrients that we actually need are coming from the bone and the cartilage, okay? So we're even getting things like glucosamine. Glucosamine helps with things like synovial fluid, hyaluronic acid. Now people are going to go, the hell is he talking about? Okay, but we're talking about like lubrication of the joint, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, I mean... I tend to find glucosamine is what's in a lot of those, like when you see an arthritis commercial and they're peddling some supplement, it's usually glucosamine. Yeah. And also just understand that most of the time they're using like a, crist a, a, a crystalline glucosamine, which is just not a very, you know, the uptake on that is really poor. It's not a good quality glucosamine. Okay. Um, you know, if we're going to use like a glucosamine, most of the time we'd probably use an N acetyl glucosamine. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's really good for like cartilage rejuvenation, which is obviously really hard to rejuvenate. You know, even like where people have like cartilage issues like Ross River syndrome and these types of things like N acetyl glucosamine can be really beneficial. So, 
yes, we're getting we're getting um, a lot of these these key compounds that we actually need for connective tissue and 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 lubrication of the joints and so forth. Because it's all well and good to say, well, I've got these issues and I'm going to do like rotator cuff exercises and all these types of things. And movement's important. I'm not taking away from that. But if you don't mm. actually have the building blocks to actually help with the rejuvenation and the replenishment, okay? You can move as much as you want. You can do the rotator cuff exercise until you're blue in the face, but you're not really going to fix the issue. You're not going to mm. fix the, the the injury. So, you know, so we're getting uh, even things like chondroitin, yeah, okay? Like this mm. actually helps with like things like tendons and ligaments, okay? So we're getting that out of like the cartilage and the, you know, all, all that nourishment that I'm talking about, okay, is, is, is coming out of the cartilage and the bone. That's, that's essentially where we're getting a lot of these key uh, nutrients and these key amino acids. So you know, what you said there is if someone's wanting as many benefits as possible, then slow cooked meats on the bone is going to give as, you know, the sort of more additional kind of benefits. If you're talking about just my gut perspective, then you can still get a lot of those same benefits from using collagen or gelatin or bone broth. Yeah. Yeah. And there's all these different types of collagen. That's probably important to understand. I think they say there's like what, six different types of collagen. Okay. And there's, you know, there's different theories about, you know, certain ones being, you know, more beneficial for, for, for different areas and so forth. Obviously the most abundant is type one collagen. And that's generally what is really important for, you know, like the gut lining and the epithelium. So, so that's why they say like, you know, gelatin sort of covers like all six collagens Mm -hmm. and so forth, but then maybe from a bioavailability perspective, okay. Because that denaturing process and the steaming process and the unraveling. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's something just, just if you need something for the hydroxyproline and the proline and the glycine a little bit more instant than something like collagen peptides may be a little bit more effective in that instance. Mm-hmm. So you could also say that depending on some other issues that people have going on, well, you know, slow cooked meats and, and these types of things that we're talking about, okay, well, very, very high in glycine. Now, I, yeah. you probably know the stats on this, but, you know, things like bone broth, the, the glycine concentration is, you know, I can't remember the exact amounts, okay, but is very high. Mm. Um, and then glycine actually, especially people who've got like, you know, inflammation. Yeah. Um, now, you know, if people are getting high amounts of a particular sulfur-based amino acid called methionine, okay, methionine gets converted into homocysteine, then homocysteine, we're not getting too biochemical, okay, that's going to get converted into things like glutathione and SAMI, adenosylmethionine. That's dependent on cofactors, okay, but a lot of the time people can have too much homocysteine. When they've got too much homocysteine, you have too much inflammation. And the good thing about glycine, it actually helps to mitigate homocysteine, mm. okay, and it also helps with sort of offsetting like methionine as well, mm. okay, so that's a, an, another benefit and mm. also, you know, glycine should be the second most abundant amino acid in the body. I know they call mm. it a non-essential amino acid, but I'm sure you're with me on this. I mean, all amino acids are essential. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Um, and even like, I, I think it's a dangerous terminology to tell someone it's a non-essential amino yeah. acid. I prefer to use the terminology of it being conditionally essential amino acid, which it is conditionally for people who don't understand. And there's, there's a group of amino acids that come into this category. Basically means you don't have enough of it. Go get it. Okay, the body needs it. Okay, that's how important it is. And, you know, how can we classify that as non-essential? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, glycine you need for, you know, it's one of the key amino acids that we need for creatine. It's an amino acid byproduct, okay? Muscle repair, muscle growth, muscle recovery, muscular endurance. And we also need glycine for uh, glutathione as well. So, mm. so mm. you would say that, you know, for, 
through consuming like slow cooked meats and a lot of things that we're talking about that you're just getting a lot of the key building blocks and the key amino acids that you also need for other mechanisms within the body as well yeah yeah i believe I mean, there's also a study i'm not sure if you've seen it where um, I think they use gelatin in the study and they showed a reduction in post-mill endotoxemia. So in, in circulating levels of LPS, just from using the, the gelatin. Um, and I saw a similar study that was done. I believe that was done in humans, but I saw a similar one in, in mice or in rats where um, they had mice with uh, colitis. And then they used, I think it was gelatin or it might've even just been the specific amino acids. And they found that there was a reduction circulating endotoxins and there was a um, strengthening effect in the mucosa and, and the barrier lining. Yeah. I mean, you know, even with something like gelatin, I mean, we know the benefits around like the skin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's well documented. Yeah, so absolutely. we've got to understand that there's, you know, and, and we've, and we've seen this in clients. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of the time when we're using this clients will quite commonly say that, you know, their skin looks a lot more rejuvenated and replenished. Mm. Okay. It's almost like glowing. Yeah. The gelatin is going to have, knock-on effect to, to other connective tissue areas as well. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I think when, when you talk about slow-cooked meats, and I'm, I'm sure you probably are going to have something to say on this as well, but everyone tends to focus on like this whole thing of like like high histamine with slow-cooked mm. meats, okay? Because obviously this, the cooking process, I'm not taking away from that because obviously it depends on the type of meat that you're using and so forth, but it's cooking for a, a very, very long duration. Mm -hmm. And yes, you know, slow cooked meats can be higher in histamine. Okay. I'm not taking away from that. And then they sort of get caught up because, you know, when you do have damage to the gut lining, well, you generally do mm -hmm. have like histamine issues, especially when you've got hyperpermeability and that's not even including when you've got certain like bacterial issues and, and so forth on top of that, because where you would also have like histamine issues is when you've got, you know, gut motility issues like SIBO. So They've got the raise in the histamine, okay? And then people generally go, well, what's the answer to this? Well, I'll just go on a low histamine diet. Now, just like what we talk about with something like low FODMAP and low salicylate and all these types of nutritional outlines, and I'm not taking away from the fact that they might nullify the inflammatory load and, 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 and initially make you feel a little bit better. I'm not taking away from that, okay? But, you know... If you, if you just go on a low histamine outline and you just avoid a lot of these foods, okay, bear in mind like alcohol is one of the highest histamine. Yeah, okay. Um, so if you just go on this low histamine outline, just go, well, I'm not going to eat slow cooked meats because they're higher in histamine. Okay. There's, there's evidence to show that you're probably just delaying the healing process. Yeah, mm -hmm. Okay. Because yes, you'll help to quell the amount of histamine. And so that might help with the histamine reactions, but we've got to ask ourselves, is the goal just to minimize the histamine response or is the goal to actually fix the area that's actually causing you to get the histamine issues in the first yeah. place? Because ultimately I need the building blocks. So, so the trade-off is yes, it's a little bit higher in histamine, but it's got all these key building blocks that we've been mm. talking about to actually fix the connective tissue. It's going to help with the intracellular tight junction. It's going to help yeah. with the structure of the epithelium. It's going to help with the brush borders. Because end of the day, if you've got things like villi atrophy and crypt hyperplasia, okay, you, 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 deterioration in the gut line, you're going to have to get the building blocks. Mm. And if you want to fast track that process, you know, slow cooked meats and what we're talking about, gelatin and bone marrow and all these types of things, okay, they are going to quicken up that process. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think I can count on probably one hand the amount of clients I've had who've had such severe histamine issues that I have had to limit things like bone broth and, and slow cooked meats. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of people who do have histamine sensitivity, but it's not normally to the extent that they can't touch any of those foods. So it is something that 
is overblown, overstated a little bit for sure. Yeah, 100% agree with you on that just quickly because, you know, I've had clients and, and they, you know, I've had terrible histamine issues and so forth. And in some instances, they're consuming slow-cooked meats every single day and bone broth every single day. Yeah. And that hasn't created any complications. Yeah, yeah. because once again, it's the building blocks. Yeah, yeah. So four other foods we want to go over. Um, let's jump into, how about we talk about a non- which one, ghee? Like another animal-based yeah. one? Okay, let's go with ghee. <laughs> yep. Um, do you want to start or you want me to jump well, in? I'll, I will just quickly mention most of our foods are animal-based. I'm sure you guys all know we're being proponent of, of, of animal, I guess, source foods, but not all five are. So hang in tight because we are going to talk about some plant-based ones in a moment. But ghee, you know, I guess we could put grass-fed butter into the same category as ghee. You know, there's there's a lot of similarities in some of these benefits. And one of the cool ones with this is that obviously it's it's high in fat-soluble vitamins, right? Which is pretty hard to get out of food usually. Like there's vitamin A in there, vitamin D, vitamin K. And these are not generally vitamins we're finding in really high amounts in, in foods, are they? No, I mean, and like, I mean, that's it's a really good point, especially when we talk about like fat-soluble vitamins. I think it's important for people to understand that there can be a lot of misconceptions around what some of the major micronutrient deficiencies are. Mm. And, and a lot, a lot gets talked around like, you know, vitamin A in terms of yeah. like, you got to be careful with vitamin A toxicity. And then there's research <laughs> papers to show that of vitamin A toxicity is a real issue. Bear in mind, a lot of those research papers are done on vitamin A supplementation. Okay. And, and not necessarily related to vitamin A that you're actually getting out of mm. your nutrition. And then a lot of people go, well, I can also get the vitamin A, from better carotene. Yeah. Okay. Once again, that's totally dependent on your conversion process. It depends on a lot of things. And we've talked about this before, but people can carry the BCM01 gene. Okay. 45% of the population carry that, that gene, and which basically means that they struggle to convert better carotene into vitamin A, which means they're going to have to get the vitamin A from you know, most likely an animal protein source. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And what they say, like the, you know, um, I think this was a statistic that was brought out by John Berardi and he said about 86% of people, are, you know, potentially vitamin A deficient. Okay. And if people want to know, and I, I know you've sort of talked to me about this in the past, but, you know, people have got vitamin A deficiency. They can have like poor night vision. Mm. So at night could be perfectly fine during the day, but blurry vision at night. So they have, uh, trouble focusing and reading mm. okay and also this is something that i know you've dealt with like people, you know people can have a lot worse acne and they can have that sort of like chicken skin or that rough skin on the back of the arms so they can be some dead giveaways that you're actually mm. struggling to get enough vitamin a but also what we're going to understand is vitamin a is just essential for your stem cells okay mm. lymphoid stem cells myeloid stem cells we're talking about things like red blood cells you know granulocytes lymphocytes so your innate immune system your acquired immune system secondary line of defense is so important you know and vitamin a is also so important for the mucosal barrier and when people do have you know issues within the gastrointestinal tract and they've got issues with things like bile and bowel salts okay you're going to have problems absorbing fat soluble vitamins yeah. and that's where some of these foods that we're talking about like you know like ghee being higher in Fat soluble vitamins, especially I think it's a little bit higher in your know, vitamin K. So that's where they really start to come into the fore. Mm. So I just wanted to put that out there because I think there's a lot of misconceptions thinking that vitamin A deficiency is just not really a big deficiency. Yeah. Yeah. You made a good point there with the whole beta carotene because 
like you said, a lot of people have genetic um, variants where they're just not going to be able to utilize beta carotene efficiently. And people don't realize, or sometimes people don't realize that vitamin A doesn't exist in plant-based foods. Vitamin A only exists in, in animal-based foods. And so if you are one of those people who can't convert the beta carotene effectively, you are going to have a vitamin A deficiency. Like there's not really two ways about that. And it's and, something and that it's not tested really in blood. So people aren't usually aware. We don't, like, I, I don't know about you, I hardly ever see it tested. But what we do see tested would be things like bilirubin, cholesterol, triglycerides, and vitamin D. And so if someone's got issues with all of these lipid markers and vitamin D, another fat-soluble vitamin is low as well, well, we can probably start to make the case that there might be some vitamin A issues. Yeah, and we could also, you know, relate that or correlate it with even like issues with red blood cells and hemoglobin mm. and also like white blood cells. Yeah. White blood cells as well, because once again, you know, the vitamin A is so essential for the stem cells. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and you know, we'll talk a little bit more about ghee. I mean, so for, for people who don't know, you know, we'll we'll chuck butter into this as well. Like it's important to understand that butter is a bit of a mixture between like, you know, it's short chain fatty acids and medium chain fatty acids, where you basically say like ghee is a little bit more medium chain fatty acids. Now, why is that also important? Because when you do have gastrointestinal issues, medium chain fatty acids, which examples of that, yes, ghee, MCT oil, um, that's medium tri chain triglycerides, okay? And also like goat's products tend to be a little bit more medium chain as well. The benefits of like a little bit more medium chain um, fatty acids is that that can be a little bit easier on the gastrointestinal tract. Mm -hmm. They don't put as much pressure on like pancreatic enzymes because mm -hmm. that can be better for people who have gastrointestinal issues. Now, once again, I'm not saying that it necessarily needs to be like that for the rest of their life, okay? But they can just be a little bit easier to process. Yes, yeah, so that's one thing that I want to say. And also the, 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 the other aspect with like ghee is very high in butyric acid. So this is butyrate. Now, just so people understand, like people who are obese, overweight, they can obviously struggle with, you know, carbohydrate fermentation. And if they struggle with carbohydrate fermentation, just to understand like indigestible matter. So things like, you know, like fruit fibers and vegetable fibers and carbohydrate molecules, which is really dependent sort of like fodder. So it's like food for the microbiome. Okay. That's really dependent on your microbiome ratios. And a lot of that indigestible matter is passed to the colon and large intestine and the microbiome come along they feed on that indigestive matter and they produce the short chain fatty acids and butyrate is one of those short chain fatty acids you've got other ones like acetate and propionate and valerate and what's the importance here because we just say that well that process takes place so you're just getting enough of these short chain fatty acids well one if you're overweight and you're obese then you've got issues with the carbohydrate fermentation so you've got issues with producing sufficient amounts of the short chain fatty acids that's one issue, but they also have documented people with IBD conditions. So that would be things like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Now these things are generally becoming more prevalent and even people with IBS conditions like irritable bowel syndrome. Now, obviously we know that would relate to things like 70% of IBS is SIBO, you know, microbiome imbalances, damage to the gastrointestinal lining. Okay. They also have problems with butyrate as well. And so the issue here is like, we can just like keep on, giving them, you know, more fibrous foods and more, mm. in the, you know, more fruit fibers and carbohydrate molecules and all these types of things. But if they don't really have the, the, the correct microbiome balance, well, that interaction is impeded on. And so that means they're going to really struggle with things like butyrate and butyrate is like a fuel source for the cells and the gastrointestinal lining. And butyrate actually helps with the growth of cells within the gut lining. 
And it actually helps with balancing out the, the, the dying cells within the gut lining and the rejuvenation of new cells within the gut lining. This is all pivotal. That's why essentially butyrate actually protects you against things like intestinal permeability mm. and also like energy. So it actually helps with like acetyl coenzyme A. And this is to do with ATP, adenosine mm. triphosphate. So it's like a major fuel source for the intestinal cells and the colon, the large intestine. This is imperative. And then also there's an immunity aspect there because it also helps with T cells. So it helps with T regulatory cells. And these actually allow you to recognize your own immune system, stopping you from getting autoimmune disease. And, and we've read these research papers where they've actually looked, looked at people with like Crohn's disease and they've mm. noticed that they can have the tendency to have very, very low butyrate levels and how they've tried to rectify some of these issues is by directly giving them butyric acid mm. uh, and then high concentrations of butyric acid. I, I can't remember the direct concentrations, but they actually, I think they had about 10 people and in, I think in five out of that 10, it actually reversed the, the Crohn's. That's pretty significant. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that that, that that is the cure for Crohn's disease, but also now we start to understand how important butyrate is and butyric yeah. acid. And that's what ghee is very rich in. It's, you know, I think it's the highest. Di- I mean, I know you told me this. I think it's the highest. We had a bit of a, a debate about this one, so I thought it was butter, okay, and I was wrong, guys. Yeah, okay, um, and it, it is actually ghee, okay? So ghee is actually higher in butyrate. And not to say that butter isn't high in butyrate because it also is, but you also you get other properties with butter like walls and factors. So it helps to drive calcium into the bones and all this type of stuff. So, but we're obviously getting something that is just hugely beneficial to reducing inflammation in the intestinal cells and all these types of things. I don't know if you've got anything to add on. on I think I covered most of it. I think one thing that you did mention that's, that's good to highlight is being an MCT, it is easier to digest. And so that's a benefit of some of these foods we're talking about is, um, you know, there's foods out there like the fermented foods and sauerkraut and kimchi and stuff like that, which, yeah, there's certainly benefit, but if someone's got a compromised gut anyway, then they're going to feel worse with, with those foods. Whereas something like ghee being higher in MCT and what is, what is it about 25% MCT or something like that, then it does make it a lot easier to digest. So if you do have issues with fat malabsorption, whether that is, you know, due to SIBO, or, you know, some form of small intestinal inflammation, you're going to generally feel better with this compared to a lot of other fats anyway. So it's just a safer food for people to be consuming. Yeah. I mean, it just eases pressure off the gastrointestinal tract. And a lot of people, you know, if, if, you know, we could talk a little bit about coconut oil, maybe just like quickly and mm. coconut oil. A lot of, I think a lot of people think that's sort of sitting a little bit more medium chain, but just to understand a lot of coconut oil is a little bit more long chain. Mm. Yes. It's got some medium chain, but it's a little bit more long chain. So that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easier for people who are struggling with like pancreatic enzymes and, you know, a lot of distress in the gastrointestinal trap, but where sort of coconut oil makes up for it is it does have capillic acid. Well, we know that's antifungal and capillic acid is very good for even permeating and puncturing, puncturing holes in like biofilm. It's very good for permeating through the chidium membrane of yeast cells, very effective against yeast. That's that antifungal sort of like properties. And also it's got capric acid and luric acid. Now they're very protective for the actual gut lining. And they actually help to, mitigate inflammation so like pro-inflammatory peptides and pro-inflammatory proteins causing a high amount of inflammation down the intracellular tight junction so that's very protective for the structure that we were talking about right at the start 
So, and then, you know, once again, I just don't want people to perceive that, you know, coconut oil is, is, is sort of falling into that medium chain fatty acid sort of realms, okay? because it does tend to be a bit more long chain, but those lyric, and even lyric acid is very good for testosterone as well. Mm. And obviously you can buy MCT oil, which is derived from coconut oil, which will be therefore higher MCT. Um, so that's yeah. an option there as well. So you did mention tight junctions and, and something you mentioned about calcium. So maybe that leads us into our next one because a lot of people aren't actually getting enough calcium in the diet either. And especially, you know, if you're not eating dairy and a lot of people don't do overly well with dairy, then ultimately they're almost certainly not going to be having high amounts of calcium in the diet, are they? No. And then obviously when people talk about calcium, I mean, you know, generally dairy is the first one that gets put out there. Okay. And then, if it's probably coming more from a plant, uh, plant source, then people talk about broccoli. But really, these two pale in comparison to the one we're going to talk about. And I know it's not everyone's favorite. It's an acquired taste. Look, I like them. I'm sure you like them. But it does I eat take them. A little... I don't know that I'd say I love them, <laughs> but I eat them. But we are talking about sardines. Now, a lot of these small fish, like, you know, even anchovies, we're going to focus more on sardines here. But a lot of these small fish, I mean... They are extremely high in calcium. I can't remember the exact ratio compared to dairy, but they are the highest source of calcium. Now, why? Because obviously you're consuming the bones. Okay. Yeah. So obviously there's small bones in there, really rich in calcium. You know, Just quickly, I, I, Dave, I want to jump in. I remember someone telling someone about this once. I won't name drop on here, but um, I was telling them about the benefit of the, the, well, the sardines, but obviously a lot of the benefit is in the bones, which you're going to talk about, and then the skin. And so I convinced this person to consume sardines. And then she sent me a photo of a packet of sardines and she got the deboned, de-skinned ones. So <laughs> she was eating sardines without bones. I don't know, you bones. could get deboned. Yeah, yeah. So um, don't do that. Get the ones with bones, get the ones with skin because back over to yeah. you. Okay, so yeah, calcium. I mean, everyone talks about calcium with like bone density and we're not going to go into that realms. And once again, we're not disputing. Of course, it's extremely important for bone density, mm. but obviously a lot of micronutrients are and they work in yep. conjunction with each other. Yep. Magnesium, vitamin D, you know, you even want to make sure vitamin K, vitamin yes. A, okay, like all these things work in conjunction with each other. Okay. That's really important. It's not just like focus on calcium, okay? <laughs> but calcium is extremely important for the gastrointestinal tract and it doesn't necessarily get talked about too much when it comes to that, Okay. Um, so a lot of the time we talk about hyperpermeability and like the type of damage that you can create in the gut lining. And obviously we know things that can exacerbate that damage, like obviously the gliding molecule, that is the problematic bit within gluten. We're not saying it's the devil, far from it, but it can be problematic. Now, so the way to look at it is like gliden, because it stimulates zonulin and that's like a, you know, a key like tight junction protein. So it sits at the top of the intracellular tight junctions, the top of the tight junctions. And when gliden sort of like stimulates zonulin, it can actually open the, the tight junction. So it opens the top section wider, okay? And then when you're sort of combining that with things like glyphosate, okay, and glyphosate is water-soluble, gets down those intracellular tight junctions and it damages the gap junctions. And then when you get the combination of gliden and glyphosate together, you create more hyperpermeability. Glyphosate okay. being the pesticide, which is used on wheat. And Roundup, basically, yeah. yeah. So... Where calcium comes into this, okay, is that it's really important for minerals and minerals, you know, they go up the intracellular tight junctions. Now calcium goes up the intracellular tight junction and it actually tells zonulin to actually pull the tight junctions tight again. So we essentially call calcium like the zipper. So it closes it up. So it's okay for the intracellular tight junctions to open up, 
but they also need to tighten up again. Now, if you do have issues in the gastrointestinal tract and you do have things like fat mal digestion, fat mal absorption, you've got to remember when you do have compromisation of the epithelium, the number one macronutrient, you are going to struggle to break down as fats. Okay, you struggle with things like bile and mycelizing factors. You just don't break them down very well. Okay, and calcium gets stuck in fat deposits. We see that in many instances within the body. And if it gets stuck in the uh, fat deposits, it's not going up the intracellular tight junctions. It's not, it's not stimu stimulating zolin and it's not tightening up the intracellular tight junctions. So essentially they stay open and that creates more hyperpermeability and that is going to ramp up like antigen and antibody response and ramp up immune response. And sardines are extremely high in calcium. And so amazing for this, okay? But you're also going to get a lot of other key nutrients. You get vitamin A, your vitamin D, they're a surface fish. So we're going to remember that. So they actually absorb a lot of, you know, vitamin D. So very rich in that. They're very rich in, you know, trace minerals as well, like selenium. They're also really high in even like phosphatidylserine. And people are going to go, what the hell is phosphatidylserine? But you want to understand when you're eating sardines, you're eating the whole fish. Even things like the brain and all yeah. that. I know it sounds bad, okay, but this is good because you're actually getting phosphatidylserine. And phosphatidylserine as a compound actually blocks cortisol. There's not too many compounds that actually block cortisol, but phosphatidylserine does. So that's going to be very, very good for people who like going through a high amount of acute phase stress. So, and the other thing is just omega-3 fatty acids. Okay? Yeah. And actually, from my perspective, sardines are one of the best sources. If not, I think they are the best source of omega-3 fatty acids. So EPA, DHA. And now why is that really important for the gastrointestinal lining? Because once again, it actually helps to protect the intracellular tight junctions. They're anti-inflammatory. Mm. Okay, So they actually help to reduce inflammation. We understand that high inflammatory load high amounts of pro-inflammatory proteins, they do things like blunt in the brush borders in the gut lining, and they can cause a lot of deterioration of the structure of the gut lining. So a lot of people are taking a fish oil supplement or they're taking cod liver oil because of the omega-3s. How often would you say someone should be eating something like sardines? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, look, obviously, I think if you're if you're not taking, you know, like a cod liver oil, and obviously you get with the cod liver oil, you're going to get the vitamin A, you get the vitamin D, yeah. EPA, DHA. Is that, I, mean, I, I should actually ask you, Dave, is that your preference? I know I'm assuming the answer is yes, but of a fish oil or cod liver oil, would you choose a cod liver oil over fish oil? Generally, because it's just covering, it's more multifaceted and it's covering more bases. Yeah, because you're getting I mean, the, yes, the, the fat-soluble vitamins in it that you're not getting in, exactly. in fish oil. I mean, and yes, the EPA and the DHA, I think is about 4% less than what you would get in a like a, a fish oil. You know, the one that I can also use with people, you know, like DHA, mm. um, helps with cognitive function. They say about 97% of the omega-3 fatty acids within the brain are DHA. And if, especially if you've got issues with the eyes, like you, yeah. you're, you're struggling with your eyesight, blurry vision, all that type of stuff. There's a lot of DHA within the retina as well. Yeah. So issues with the eyes, you know, cognitive issues. Now also issues with the joints. DHA is really important for the joints. I think I told you this before, but they did testing on people with rheumatoid arthritis and they actually showed that they were majorly deficient in DHA within the joints. Yeah. Yeah. So if it is more people with rheumatoid arthritis and these types of joint and connective tissue issues, something like a DHA, a high proportion of DHA could actually be pretty beneficial there as well. Yeah. But yes, generally I'd say my preference is around like cod liver oil. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is important because a lot of these foods, especially when we're talking about foods, these are not medications, 
right? And so someone might, like a lot of people have this mentality of, oh, well, you know, bone broth or sardines is going to fix all my issues and I just need to eat it once a month and I'm fine. And these are food-based forms of these nutrients. And so you actually need to be consuming these quite regularly. And if it's something like sardines, um, the literature I've seen would suggest that you need to be eating them two to three times a week at, at least to actually be optimizing, yeah, to, to optimize omega-3 ratios. And if not, then you should be supplementing. So it's not the kind of thing where you can pat yourself in the back as the eight sardines or, you know, once a month. No, no, no. If that's all you're going to be consuming fatty fish, good quality fatty fish, well, then we should be supplementing on top of that as well. That's a really good point. I, I would say that, you know, the very least, you know, three times a week. Yeah. Even if you can do a little bit more than that, okay, well, yeah. okay, then you might not need to take as much supplementation around that. Yeah, 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 exactly right. So we've covered, what have we done so far? We've done bone broth, then... We've done, we've done ghee, we've done sardines. Ghee, sardines. I mean, should we, we go into some other realms? Let's yeah, do, I mean, we, let's, let's go with the, the goat stuff, shall we? Go for goat's products? Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Look, obviously we talk about goat's products a lot. Now, obviously we can talk about a lot here. Okay. Well, obviously we've got things like goat's whey. We've also already talked about, you know, like goat's colostrum. Yep. We talked about the properties that that has. Okay? Yeah. Like even things like, you know, lactoferrin and yeah. you know, proline rich peptides and all these types of things. I mean, like yep. growth so, so that's a good point, Dave. If you haven't listened to that podcast, go back and listen to it because we do spend a long time talking about a lot of the benefits predominantly of goat's colostrum. We do talk about bovine a bit as well, but we do cover all these different facets to, to goat's colostrum and even goat's whey a little bit in that earlier podcast. Yeah, and even if we look at something like goat's whey, the essential amino acid profile is actually really good in something like goat's whey. And, you know, the thing that I really love about goat's whey, I know it's a little bit more expensive. I'm not mm. taking away from that, but it's very high in cysteine. Uh, it's really important to understand people with like gut dysbiosis and gastrointestinal issues, they tend to have like a degradation of cysteine in the gut. Now, cysteine is one of the key amino acids. Like obviously we need it for many things, but it's one of the key amino acids we actually need for glutathione. That's why actually goat's products are really, really uh, pivotal to actually help with like glutathione production. Okay. So what do we need for glutathione? Cysteine, glycine, glutamine, right? So if you're adding in bone broth and you're adding in goat's products, glutamine is not really a big issue. So those two, pretty pretty good combo for supporting glutathione, hey? Yeah, well, glutathione is a tripeptide. So yes, you're looking at glycine, you're looking at cysteine, and obviously you're looking at glutamic acid, glutamate, glutamine. Okay, that's the ingredients that we need. Obviously, we need cofactors as well. Mm. Okay, but that's the soup that we need. So all the, a lot of the things that we're talking about, we're, we're covering that base, and that's really going to help with glutathione. That's the master antioxidant in the body. Okay, yeah. even if we look at particular blood markers like GGT, gamma glutamyl transferase, that's like your longevity marker, really. Yeah, okay? yeah. There's um, studies that show that absolutely. Yeah, and that's really telling us, like you know, it's to do with. Uh, Yes, the glutamyl cycle, but it's really like the glutathione cycle. Okay, mm. so it's really telling us your ability to reconstitute glutathione, but essentially it's telling us your ability to synthesize glutathione from the liver. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, goat's products are really amazing to actually help with cysteine. And also, you've got to remember because where goats and, and sheep where they graze and and the soil quality is generally uh, a lot higher in you know things like selenium and you know I, I did say sardines are a good source of selenium as well. Free radical scavenger helps with the conversion of T4 to T3. You're talking about thyroid hormone here as well. Okay. But goat's products, because where they graze, okay, the soil is really rich in selenium, even like zinc. And also goat's products are a very good source of omega-3 fatty acids as well. 
And we, we need to understand when we're consuming goat's products, okay, we do recognize the enzymes in goat's products a lot better. Uh, and with that, that means that can be a, a lot easier on the gastrointestinal tract and also negligent in casein. Okay? And bear in mind, it's actually the protein molecule, casein, that a lot of people are responding poorly to. Yeah. Like everyone blames lactose and a lot of the time it can be the casein. And the other thing on that, and remember your ability to break down something like lactose can range from anywhere from 1% to 95%. It's pretty broad. And mm. yes, that can be ancestral and epigenetic, but a lot of the time it can be you know, to do with what's going on with the epithelium and the structure within the gut lining. So if that's compromised- People won't realize that. That's important. So you're saying uh, for some people, the issue with dairy, bovine, cow dairy is lactose. For some people, it's not. For some people, it's casein. But if it is lactose, you're saying genetically there could be an issue. And we know that. And we know that there's certain, you know, regions of the world where someone comes from there, there's a higher likelihood of them having some of these genetic variances. But if you're someone who always used to feel okay drinking milk or having dairy and in your teenage years you felt okay and then suddenly in your adulthood you start feeling bad with it that's probably not a genetic issue because if it was genes by puberty you would no longer be breaking down and assimilating lactose very well so in that instance it's probably more due to permeability isn't it it's due to, to some damage or compromisation of the the gut lining which is down regulating that enzyme which is breaking down the lactose so 100%. you can actually see in that instance if someone's doing poorly with lactose if you repair the gut lining they can start to consume lactose again and probably be okay yeah because the enzyme lactase okay that helps you to break down lactose is actually produced within the epithelium but if you have a compromisation of the epithelium it's going to compromise your ability to break down something like lactose mm. it's a glucose molecule which basically means you can't break it down properly it just sort of sits there and it ferments in the gut and that can also encourage bacterial overgrowth yeah. and also it depends on even things like what's going on with your microbiome ratios mm. if you've got low levels of like lactobacillus especially like lactobacillus bulgaricus well lactobacillus bulgaricus actually helps with lactase and your ability to break down lactose. Okay, so if there's low levels there, that's also going to affect your ability to interact with something like lactose. So, a lot so of the is time that it's bacteria is that found naturally in in milk? Lactobacillus bulgaricus. Yeah, look, like, yeah, dairy products. Yeah, okay, like yes, because obviously a lot of people do better with unpasteurized milk, and I wonder because obviously there's more lacto more lactase that's still sort of in, intact in unpasteurized. Yeah, when we're milk. having like raw milk, yeah, okay, it's really important to understand that it contains lactase. Okay, and when you have pasteurized, homogenized milk, pasteurized milk, okay, it doesn't contain lactase. Okay, which means it's really dependent on you being able to produce more lactase from the epithelium and also dependent on the, the microbiome and the lactobacillus levels to enable you to really metabolize that and break it down efficiently. Mm. And once again, if that's compromised, you're not going to be able to do that. You're going to get fermentation issues and potentially, you know, create bacterial complications on top of that. And that enzyme that you just mentioned there, lactase, if someone's actually purchasing milk, which doesn't have lactose, lactose-free milk, it does still have lactose. They've just added that enzyme to it. They've just added lactase, haven't they? So effectively, well, there's two ways of doing it, but that's the most common way. So effectively, what we're doing, this is how our whole food system works, is we get dairy, which is perfectly fine in the first place. Then we heat it up and pasteurize it. So we denature the lactase and then we add lactase back into it synthetically and then charge you extra for it. Yep, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> So, you know, we are a big advocate of, you know, even things like raw milk. It does have things like immunoglobulins, does have lactase, okay? So it's, you know, it's actually not going to put as much pressure on the gastrointestinal tract. Even things like 
glucoslingolipids, which actually help with like gastrointestinal infections, flies in the face of what they say about things like dairy. Mm -hmm. So once again, there's a lot of misconceptions around this, but generally a lot easier and a lot more beneficial for things like the immune system and a lot easier on the gastrointestinal tract. Now, we sort of got sidetracked there with the goat's products. Is there anything else we need to mention about that? You mentioned the cysteine. We've talked in depth last time about sort of the, the lactoferrin and colostrum benefits there. You've mentioned selenium and iodine. Anything else that comes to mind about goat's products? Look, they're the, look they'd be the major things yep. that I think, like, you know, that people are going to get a lot of benefit from. I mean, all, of Hemoglobin, course, do you want to mention that maybe in iron synthesis? I mean, like what, what particular aspects? Well, just if, and this doesn't apply to everyone, obviously, but, but some people who, you know, especially if there is more damage to the gut, then they might have issues with iron and you can often see, you know, even IBD cases will be lower iron status. And obviously there's studies showing goat's dairy and, you know, goat's kefir or goat's milk helping with iron status and hemoglobin and, and absorption of iron. So that could be a benefit there as well for some of those people. Look, I definitely agree with what you're saying there, but I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't come across those, those sure. studies directly. So look, I think that, I mean, there's heaps there of, you know, why we recommend goat's products. And, and like you were saying, it's a lot easier for people to digest. Even the protein itself is smaller. Like uh, I think from the top of my head, bovine uh, and a molecule of bovine protein is about like eight times larger than a, a molecule of human milk protein. And so it can be quite hard to digest that way. And goats and sheep's protein is a lot smaller. So obviously it's a lot more gentle. So if people do think they do poorly with dairy, it is certainly worth trying goat's dairy and see if you feel better with it. And, and, you know, bearing in mind that it still comes down to the quality because it's still hard sometimes to find good quality goat's products. It's obviously a bit easier, but you know, if you go to supermarket and you get goat's milk, I don't know how where you stand with goat's milk, Dave, but I normally wouldn't just go buy it from the supermarket because it's still going to be pasteurized, still going to be homogenized. It's still going to have some of those shortcomings that I don't like about cow's milk in the first place. So where we're sourcing, it still matters. So I, I do actually remember the research paper that you're talking about now. <laughs> and I, yeah, I do. It was actually in relation to, to goat's kefir. Yeah. And they actually showed that goat's kefir actually helped with like um, folate, helped with B9 and, and B9 is a key component that you actually need for hemoglobin. So they actually found that this could actually help with things like hemoglobin concentrations, hemidocrit concentrations. So I do, I do remember the, <laughs> the research paper that you're talking about. Um, yeah, I, thought, I think you're the one who told me about it in the first place. I was like, yeah, hey, yeah. are you sure well, about this, Dave? <laughs> yeah. um, okay, we better conclude with our fifth and final one. And we saved our, our non-animal-based gut healing superfood for last. Dave, what is it? We could probably chuck like a, a few in here, but you know, I think we sort of decided on like, you know, herbs. I know that's pretty broad. Cool. We could probably chuck some other ones in there, but... I mean, what do they say? Like with herbs and spices, there's over like a hundred herbs and spices. There's there's a lot. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to sit here and talk about you know every single one, but we're going to talk about some of the major ones. You know, I think the big thing with herbs and spices, you are covering a lot of things like phytonutrients. They do have a lot of things like flavonoids, really powerful antioxidants. Now, especially for people who are suffering like a lot of oxidative stress. Okay. I'm not, and once again, I don't want to persecute ox oxidative stress here. Okay. There's a lot of free radical damage. Now, when you've got more oxidative stress, basically means you've got an imbalance between you know, the amount of free radicals and the amount of antioxidants you, you actually have to, to, to neutralize that and balance it out. So when you have too many free radicals and not enough antioxidants, that creates more oxidative stress and that's creating like damage to your DNA, your RNA. 
even impacting things like your telomeres, like longevity. Okay, so and this is where a lot of herbs and a lot of these these compounds really come into their own because they're so rich in these. So if we look at something like, you know, give some examples, like even something like parsley, I know it's not something that like sort of gets talked about a lot, but parsley, that actually does um, help. It's got compounds that actually help with things like bladder infections. It can also help with like kidney stones, like micronutrients. I think, you know, vitamin A is not amazing there, okay, but vitamin C and vitamin K, and it can definitely help with oxidative stress. So the only reason I wanted to use a bit of an example with parsley, but a lot of people would just think it's, you know, not a big thing. Most yeah. of the time we're using it as a garnish. And I would say that we would put a big focus on using herbs with a lot of the, 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 the meals that we're actually getting people to prepare. Like rosemary, it's got some massive benefits for soothing the digestive system. I think it's got like anti-cancer properties, but also anti-inflammatory properties as well. I mean, mint, okay, well, for soothing the, you know, soothing digestion. We mm. also know that mint has benefits around soothing the gut and actually making it a little bit more effective to um, get to something like SIBO, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, because it soothes the gut and relaxes it. It actually means that antimicrobials can be a lot more effective at getting to the, the bacterial overgrowth. And even I think they've found that it can even ease, it's got benefits to the brain, like even easing aspects around like depression as well. Basil, that's another good one. I think that they can actually use it as a bit of a pain reliever. It's got really powerful uh, flavonoids and some of those can actually help with protection of like white blood cells, cellular uh, protection. So uh, protection around cell structure. And I'm only just naming some of them here. And so we would always encourage, you know, a lot of like diversity and rotation mm. when it comes to a lot of these herbs. I mean, would you even like chuck something like ginger in there as well? Yeah, well, um, I, I do think we should mention ginger. And, and I think something as well with just herbs in general, a lot of herbs have, you know, biofilm, like anti-biofilm properties. They've got, you know, subtle antimicrobial, antifungal properties. And there's definitely a case to be made that maybe this is partly why, traditional peoples didn't deal with as much bacterial issues as maybe we deal with today. You know, maybe the fact that we don't have these sort of constant kind of foods in our diet that are actually just keeping bacteria at bay that little bit, maybe that's negatively impacted our health overall. So there's that benefit there as well. But like you said, ginger, ginger's a huge one. You know, ginger, if we talk about it from a, a prokinetic standpoint, if someone's got something like SIBO or the more prone to constipation, then there's huge benefits of adding in SIBO for that, that motility aspect there. Um, even as an antimicrobial, like what I just mentioned with other herbs, but I think you've, you've mentioned to me the benefits of, of ginger for that effect. Well, it actually inhibits bacteria that is actually being linked to like gum inflammation. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely got like antimicrobial properties. What bacteria is that? I can't remember the direct strain, um, but you, look, you can definitely find research around that. Okay. So it's definitely got antimicrobial properties and even like, modulating the signaling of serotonin. Now, serotonin um, is anti-inflammatory, but it also helps with things like gut motility as well. Mm, yeah. Um, and I think it also, like ginger, can soothe the upper sections of the, the gastrointestinal tract. Mm -hmm. So it can actually help with the stomach. And it also can inhibit enzymes that have actually been linked to like things like peptic ulcers or creating yeah. like peptic ulcers. So there's a lot of benefits here around like uh, around the gut with some... Yep. Yeah, um, and that's why like you'll pregnancy. see a lot of the time like ginger being used in like you know direct gut motility sort of yeah. like you know broad spectrum supplements that can yeah. its benefits here. I think um, I even saw a study on ginger and, and period pain. Have you seen that study? 
I look, I, I definitely have, uh, it's definitely come up before. I can't remember the, mm. you know, the, I remember the it looked research. pretty promising. I forget exactly the stats, but it, it definitely looked pretty good. Yeah. And then the other one that I just want to give a bit of a, you know, a bit of a shout out to, and actually sort of a little bit new on my radar and been using it a little bit more frequently is, is actually radishes, you know, radishes. So for any, anyone with like issues with like bilirubin, like yeah. elevation in like bilirubin, I'm, I'm sure you've heard about this. Radishes can be very good for actually clearing and like eliminating excess amounts of like bilirubin. Yeah. Okay. So anyone who's, you know, complications like jaundice. Now, yeah. obviously we understand that people with CFO and SIBO are going to have these types of issues. So radishes can be a little bit like underrated when it comes to their benefits around the gastrointestinal tract. But I think it's also really high in anthocyanins because of obviously the reddish color of the, of the, of the radish and anthocyanins are really good for actually helping to clear excess amounts of uric acid that can lead to things like gout, but also like cardiovascular it actually helps the cardiovascular system as well. And also it's probably got some benefits around connective tissue and collagen as well, because radishes can actually help with skin. I think they've got, you know, good sources like zinc and phosphorus, vitamin C, B vitamins. Okay. So I know that they talk about it being beneficial for the, for the skin. Now, if it's beneficial for the skin, which is connective tissue, yeah. okay, it's collagen. Okay. Well, that's going to have some benefits around the gastrointestinal tract. And I find by including something like radishes, they, de- they do tend to be pretty easy on the gut. And a lot yeah. of people do feel quite, you know, quite good actually consuming them. Yeah. Yeah. It's low FODMAP as well. So if something does have bacterial issues, it shouldn't be shouldn't cause any issues there yeah it's definitely a a food worth adding in for sure so there we go that was like two plant-based foods we we outdid ourselves Dave. well done (laughs) yeah i think we did a lot better than we thought we're gonna do so (laughs) look and i'm sure like you know there's always going to be things that we've left out and i'm sure we'll probably tackle this again but you know i would say that these are some of the ones that we really believe you get the most bang for your buck yeah. And especially when you are dealing with, you know, really severe gastrointestinal issues, they're just going to be a lot easier on the gut. And that's more to the point. We're not saying that this is what essentially needs to happen for the rest of your life. But whilst you're trying to realign some of the, the damage that you have in the gut lining and some of the bacterial issues that you have, these, these, these foods that we're talking about are, are really going to help to speed up that healing process and also enable you to get a lot of the key nutrients that that you require for other mechanisms within the body as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that sort of came out a lot, a lot when you were speaking was that while we're talking specifically about stuff that's going to help with the gut, actually there's so many other benefits as well. And you were talking about joints and you're talking about neurological benefits and talking about cardiovascular benefits and, you know, what's good for the gut. You know, a lot of this stuff's going to be good for the whole body just in general. So yeah, these are, you know, gut healing superfoods, but they're also foods that are going to help with detox, help with the liver, help with skin, help neurologically, help overall so definitely some some foods worth adding into your diet so go add some of those to your shopping list and we'll talk to you guys next time thanks guys thanks joe thanks so much for listening guys as always we hope this podcast was helpful if you want to continue to connect with us our social media profiles are linked in the show notes And don't forget, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only. None of the information provided in a gut feeling is intended to treat, diagnose, or give medical advice. So please consult a healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle.